Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. So this is our 26th sermon in our sermon series on Luke's Gospel, and we will examine Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. That's page 863 in your pew Bible. Now, this uh, section is the second set of imperatives, of commands from the Lord Jesus. Now, last Lord's Day, we examined his commands concerning the believer's stance before the world that opposes the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen in our study of Luke's account of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, how he began to teach his apostles and disciples, and so you and me, the indicatives of the gospel right at the start. He explains the nature of true poverty and true hunger and true grief. We learn how our own righteousness is filthy rags before God. We cannot deliver ourselves. So our consolation is the redemption and the presence of the Lord Jesus, who by his death removes our guilt, who by his life gains us eternal life, and who sends the Holy Spirit for his indwelling of our hearts, so that we would then grow in greater conformity to him. We also learned how the more of the sweetness of Christ we may comprehend, the more we hunger for him. Our riches are always qualified as being in Christ, or of Christ, or is Christ. And so our hunger for Christ spurs a deep desire within us for others to know him as we do. We have a holy grieving for those whose spiritual eyes are blind, their spiritual hearts are hardened. Therefore, his commands for believers to do good, to love, to bless those who curse, pray for those who abuse, are all grounded in what Christ has done and who we are in him. It's not determined in the worldly way by the prior behavior of the other towards you. It is not qualified in any way because our behavior is determined by the character of God himself who unconditionally saved us. He worked in a unilateral, in a deliberative way. And so God says to you and me, I have loved you like this. Trust Love me in return, for this is my commandment. Be merciful, as I have shown you mercy. And so therefore we're commanded, love our enemies. Do good to those who hate us. Bless those who curse us. Pray for those who abuse us. Each command we learned is restorative then in nature. We join the last Adam, our Savior Christ. By union through the power of the Spirit, we become his faithful stewards, his sub-stewards, over the great steward who stands above us. 
to restore order to the household of God, to all of creation, and within the household of God in the church. We perform deeds of restoration. We do good to those who hate us. We speak words of restoration. We bless those who curse us. We characterize our daily lives in restorative prayer. We pray for those who abuse us. But our behavior, marked by the Lord Jesus, is provocative to one of the world. It draws more frustration from them. The world takes exception to your allegiance and my allegiance to Christ. Therefore, in that specific situation, in Christ Jesus, the disciple is not to retaliate. We must not seek revenge. We must be ready, on account of the Son of Man, to accept another injury. There is no qualification to mercy. But this evening now, we turn to his commands concerning the believer's stance before other believers that the love of the Lord Jesus so brings fruit in our relationships of one to another as brother and sister in Christ. He sets out for us the application of the gospel among believers. His main point is that we are free indeed in him. And that freedom releases you and me from judging another and bringing condemnation to them before God. Therefore, we are, in consequence, freed from judgment and condemnation from other believers. We live our lives in the generous freedom of being all in union to Christ. And the more penetrating our spiritual discernment of this truth of the gospel... the discerning it can grow and the more enriching life in Christ will be the result. So let's look now to see how indeed our Savior commands us in our relationship to one another. First, he begins in qualifying our life as one of generosity. Now, I want you to notice how the pattern of the Lord's teaching here matches what we studied last Sunday. There are four commands here as well. They're all in the present tense, so it's all habitual action. He addresses his hearers in the second person, you. So he's still addressing the believers, the apostles and disciples that have drawn close to hear his teaching. But there are differences here also. Can you see them? Do you see how the commands have two parts to them? Look at the first in verse 37a, that first section, judge not and you will not be judged. Do you see the second half is passive? Now, why is it passive? You will not be judged. Well, it turns out the commentaries tell us that this is a Jewish way of avoiding pronouncing the name of God. So the passive response is a shorthand in the words, you will not be judged, means do not judge, And God, his covenant name, God himself, will not judge you. You live your life among believers, always deepening your understanding that you live in God's presence. All the time, for every single moment. 
Now, I say this because there are some who see these passages, especially this first command, in, as most misunderstood and misapplied of all the commands in the Scripture. Because we probably heard it ourselves. You know, we might make some comment about the moral or ethical quality of a believer's life, say, in the mainline congregations from which we came. And what will we hear? Ah, judge not. Judge not. You see, American liberal mainline Christianity loves this command. I mean, Americans love this command because judging someone else is the worst crime of intolerance. So what can we say in response? What is going on here? Well, we can tell them right away that they've taken this command out of context. There are qualifications here. You see, there are many other examples in the scriptures that call for believers to judge even at times to condemn sin for the sake of the safety of the other believer. Indeed, every time we come to the Lord's table, I say to you once again the exhortation reminding you to take care and come to receive the sacrament of God's grace in a worthy manner. To consider yourselves before God. And to beware of places where a sinfulness of heart may prevent you from receiving the fullness of God's grace in the sacrament. Even in this same sermon, we will see next Sunday how the Lord Jesus calls upon us to judge people by their fruit. And we'll see in chapter 11 how the Lord Jesus gives clear and forceful judgments to the scribe and Pharisee. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in Galatians chapter 2. So what can we say of this command? Judge not, and you will not be judged. Well, what the Lord Jesus is doing here is he's building off the gospel indicatives from where he began. He's distinguishing between the essential and non-essential matters of faith. He assumes here and has built his entire sermon upon the non-negotiable indicatives of the gospel. What it is that God has done to save us. Who we are now in Christ and how God preserves us. We are in Christ, in his presence as believers. He is our Heavenly Father. He is no longer our terrible judge. We are his children by adoption. So what distinction has the Lord Jesus made here? Well, I thought for a bit in how I could explain this to you by way of illustration, and I came up with a, well, a hard-boiled egg. So consider a hard-boiled egg for a moment. There is the egg yolk in the center, and surrounding it is the egg white. Well, like an egg yolk at the center, there are those essential doctrines on which believers must not disagree or they will risk compromising their fellowship. But there are also matters like the surrounding egg white that are matters on which you could disagree without jeopardizing your fellowship. His command here 
within the context of his sermon is not to judge toward those things that are in the white of the egg, not the center, the yolk of the egg in which we as believers are united. They have both technical terms, too. You may want to write them down. The first one, those that are the egg white, the non-essential, you may have even heard the term. They're called adiaphora. A-D-I-A-P-H-O-R-A. Adiaphora. The center, the yolk of the egg, those essential doctrines that unite us together in Christ are called the diaphora. The diaphora. You see the alpha in the front, the A in the front is a privative. It says it's a negative. This is the diaphora. Those are the things, the essential things, the excellent things of God that we must retain. You see, a believer must refrain from such judgments of adiaphora because we can be deceived. Our knowledge is limited by our sinfulness, by our circumstance. Rather, we must be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. God is patient with you, with your shortcomings, allowing you time to repent and mature, and we must therefore do the same for each other. We are to support and pray for one another. All of us here can make poor decisions in our life in Christ. We may not be sinning as such, but a more mature believer or one who has been down the road on which you travel now and can tell you by the scars they've received in that trial that you do not want to take too many steps down that road. We love one another, we support one another, and we pray for our fellow believer that the conviction of their heart may change and the direction may be restored on the straight and narrow path of the gospel itself. Do not judge is a warning against fault-finding, a censorious spirit that binds the believer rather than liberates the believer. The second command, condemn not, uses a verb that in the original describes a hard-heartedness, a lack of compassion. Do you see how it goes from the example of our action in judging to here to that inward stance of our hearts in condemnation? The Apostle James describes the same condition. It's a condemnation that is tinged with sin. He says that we murder the righteous person because we already have condemned them in our hearts. And we know our Lord Jesus says exactly the same thing. Now the third command in verse 37c reverses the negative pattern, the first two, for a positive. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now you see, the word forgive here is a little too restrictive when you compare it to the original. There it has more of a sense of pardoning, of releasing, of restoring. Our acts of forgiveness are acts of restoration, after all. 
we set our brothers and sisters free rather than binding them because we are free in the Lord Jesus. And this is, gives us a strategy for how we can counsel our fellow believer. For we can find that those who have veered off in one way or the other, I guarantee you the issue normally is, is they have obscured in some way the truth of who they are in the Lord Jesus, being saved by God's grace and mercy. They need more of Christ, more of Christ, where they are free in him indeed. Now the fourth command in verse 38 is fascinating. In this hyperbole that Jesus uses, it seems simple enough, doesn't it? Give, and it will be given to you. You see, the believer's obedient generosity will find good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now what is the Lord Jesus referring to here? Well, this, my dear friends, is an allusion to the witness of Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth. You may recall from our study last year how Ruth's faithfulness to God brought the fruit in her care for her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. And how it just so happened, and we remember how God's unseen hand worked in his providence in Ruth's life, that she picked the field to glean that was the field of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Boaz, who was equally faithful to our Heavenly Father. His heart, oriented in God's grace, could see the same quality in another believer of another, equally dedicated to the Lord, in Ruth, the Moabites. Listen again to Boaz's encouragement to Ruth as he fills her shawl with so much grain that she has to stagger home. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth sought and received protection under the wings of the Lord. And so this wonderful image of Ruth, both happy and humorous, pictures her gathering up her garment to see the quantity of grain that is poured into it, packed down and filled beyond expectation as she staggers home, careful not to spill this great prize in the ephah that she has plucked that day. God will repay lavishly and abundantly those in the Christian community whose generosity is the fruit of their obedient faith. Now, what is the biblical principle the Lord Jesus highlights here? The more we understand our shelter under our Heavenly Father, the more contented we are in Him and Him alone. Let me repeat that. The more we understand our shelter under our Heavenly Father, the more contentment we gain in him and him alone. And so our attachment to the things of this world eases and lessens, and we can have a generosity 
that brings a witness to his glory and his ultimate generosity in your salvation in the Lord Jesus. Now, having set the stance of one believer is to have one another, the Lord Jesus continues in teaching of how the believer's liberty is sustained and imparted for the strengthening of one believer to another. This is the meditative life, the meditative life. Now, what is essential for the believer's life? The believer must see if he or she is to grow in grace themselves or to help others do the same. Therefore, the more penetrating our spiritual vision, the discernment with that vision grows. And so the more enriching our life in Christ becomes. Now, what have we already learned of the Lord Jesus? Well, we've learned of his life and how he was sustained by God's word and lived a life of dependent prayer through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he tells us, no disciple is above the teacher. Therefore, our spiritual integrity, our acuity of spiritual vision must have the same structure. We must meditate on his word and we must live a life in dependent prayer because through this we gain a discerning wisdom as we live out our lives in Christ. I think this can be a great comfort for every believer that, you know, as our own physical eyesight falters through age, our spiritual sight can gain an ever-exacting precision because it is the fruit of our meditation on his word. It is the fruit of the hours and hours as they accumulate over the years that we've spent in prayer. My dear friend, as the world around you grows fuzzy, as your eyesight falters, your spiritual sight can gain more precision and more depth so that it will see you home. And so it brings to us an authentic life in Christ. And with that authenticity and a spiritual acuity in sight and vision, we gain influence. Influence over younger believers those who have yet to endure the trials that we have. It is our responsibility then to act instead as faithful brothers and sisters to those around us in the fellowship of the church. The fruit of your life and my life in God's word understood is God's word explained to a younger believer. How aware are we, I wonder, of that enduring truth of the gospel? That, my dear friend, as you have lived your life before others, there comes a time for all of us when the receiving begins to wane ever slowly and the giving of our experience, of our spiritual acuity, becomes more and more precise.
When those days come and we might flag or fail, remember instead how much your brothers and sisters in Christ need you. Even those who you may think have it all together, you do not see inside their hearts and where they are before the Lord in this moment. But thanks be to God, we gain instead through meditation of his word and a life of dependent prayer, a true gift of seeing to show the way for those whom we love in the fellowship of the church. And now the Lord Jesus now moves from commands concerning the quality of our liberty in Christ, in his completed work, in our life of meditation upon it, and our life of prayer and praise before him, in a simple call to examine our lives and to keep this the touchstone of our years on this earth. And here we have a wonderful example of our Savior's sense of humor in the carefully examined life. You see, with humor and hyperbole, Jesus uses the caricature of a speck and a log in the eye to warn us again against judging fellow believers. Notice, he's still talking in terms of eyesight here, isn't he? So the matter of doctrine and the relationship to it, of adiaphora and diaphora, and the nature of how we are meant to support one another in spiritual insight and clarity is brought home to us in this humorous illustration. He's still describing the fellowship of believers. So therefore, the reference to a brother here in verse 41 is a brother or sister in Christ. And the caricature recalls the command at the start. The speck connotes something minuscule, the adiaphora, the white egg yolk. And we could perhaps picture a speck of sawdust in the eye. In other words, this adiaphora, the things over which believers can disagree without breaking fellowship. The contrast between a speck and the log here is comical. For the log understood here in the original language is not just a piece of wood, say, for the campfire, a log like that. The actual meaning that Jesus is using is the load-bearing I-beam at the pinnacle of the roof. Look above us here now. You can see it as it crosses the trusses above us. That is the log that Jesus refers to here. Now, what is his point? It is that self-examination, personal reformation, are absolutely necessary. They're prerequisites for anyone presuming to seek the reformation of other believers. We may think we see the fault of a fellow believer clearly, even that we are offended by it. But what of the log in our own eye? That indicates what? It indicates a warning, a lack of meditation in God's word, and the necessary self-examination that his word stirs in us that we bring before him in our prayers of repentance and faith. What has happened? We have forgotten the gospel indicatives again. But the consequences here are serious, aren't they? Notice how 
what Jesus calls this person in verse 42c. The consequence is to be a hypocrite. Hypocrisy. And the word here is the word that refers to the theatrical mask of the Greek theater. You see, actors in ancient Greek and Roman theater did not dress themselves in such a way that you could see their face. Instead, they donned a mask, they placed it upon them to represent someone else. Only self-examination, you see, meditation in the scriptures will ultimately bring about our self-reform because the power of the Spirit is only known through the revelation of God's word. He never acts apart from it. He always works concurrently with it. The convictions of our heart in the meditation of his word, the exhortation and strengthening which we receive are all products of the Spirit's work within us. That enables Christians like you and me to see the other not only differently, but correctly within the reality of God's saving grace. We know this because the final verb for seeing here, with that great eye being removed, is different from the previous word for seeing. This time, Jesus uses the word to see as to see clearly to the heart of the matter, to see clearly to the heart of the matter. You see, what we see in actions that are contrary to God's revealed word may reveal a much more disturbing root of an even more devastating sinful disobedience in our hearts. The purpose of saying, of the saying, is spiritual introspection with making ourselves a service to fellow believers and for the enriching of the saints. Then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye, and to take it out. You see, the Lord Jesus instructs us that our lives as believers is first one of true liberty. We have been set free from the bondage to sin, and the law no longer condemns us, for we are made right in his righteousness before our Heavenly Father. Our stance toward one another horizontally in accepting, forgiving, in generosity, in encouragement, and in prayer, and in spiritual insight through his word, is all because of our vertical stance before our Heavenly Father is guaranteed, the same Father who is accepting and forgiving and generous. You see, he teaches us also that the quality of your inner life and mine is the key. The quality of that inner life exhorts us to search our lives. This is no new teaching, is it? But rather, it is the teaching of the scriptures themselves. Wherever you go in the Old Testament, you find indeed that Jesus, in a way, is not saying anything new but rather instead going to the heart of the matter and what lies in the human heart before God in the commands of the Old Testament or the prayers which they spoke to one another and to our Heavenly Father 
in synagogue in worship. Now, we know the Lord Jesus prayed the Psalms. It sustained him in his deadliest trial on the cross. We know this for what he says in the last words of Christ. Each one reminds us of a particular psalm in the Old Testament. Now, I believe he would have known Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, and that that is where his mind is as he makes this teaching. What is that psalm? What does it say in those verses? Well, it actually is a prayer, a life of dependent prayer, you see, a prayer to our Heavenly Father, and this is what it says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, my dear friends, I do believe that our Savior Christ, in his human nature, prayed this prayer. Indeed, this was his prayer, as he walked in obedient humiliation while here on earth. So, it must be surely our prayer as well, don't you think? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.